Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris, Dominic, Dave and Helen. Helen, what have you been uh, looking at in the news this week for us? Christmas is coming, as we've all noticed, and I suspect that uh, there'll be lots of movies watched um, over the Christmas period. And perhaps one of your favourites, certainly one of mine, is Finding Nemo. And uh, the fact is that now scientists have uncovered um, the fact that one in six species featured in the Finding Nemo movie are at risk of disappearing from the oceans, and that's due mainly to overfishing. So really, the chances are that you're not going to find Nemo if you actually went and looked for him yourself. A research team from Simon Fraser University and uh, from the World Conservation Union, the IUCN, they examined the extinction risk facing over 1,500 marine species. Okay, so there weren't 1,500 species in Finding Nemo. What they did was they took the families that you can see on screen and examined all the species in those families. And uh, that included things like hammerhead sharks, sea turtles, pelicans, pufferfish, eagle rays and seahorses. Hooray for seahorses. So um, the information they gathered came from the IUCN's red list assessments. And this essentially ranks the extinction risk, um, ranging from critically endangered through endangered, vulnerable and near threatened of various different species. Um, And these categories are all based on a very detailed set of standards against which the size of populations and the changes they've undergone are gauged. And if there's not enough information then these factor, in these factors, then basically a species is labelled as data deficient. What they found was that 12 to 35% of the species they looked at were considered to be threatened with extinction. That's ranging from critically endangered through to vulnerable. And to to be honest, the point of this study isn't really to see if Hollywood has got anything to say about extinction in the oceans. Um, It's it's more about assessing how well these famous charismatic species that are getting attention from us, how are they getting on both in terms of their status in the wild and our efforts to protect them? Um, Because frankly, if we can't figure out conserving these glamorous animals like sharks and turtles... What hope is there for the lesser-known species that don't make it onto the silver screen and that few of us have actually heard of? Isn't it quite good that Hollywood does um, champion some of these species because then at least people have heard of them and then they feel they have a sort of stake in their welfare, really? Oh, oh, abs- absolutely. I do. I, I, I love the fact that even any vaguely re- recognisable marine species makes itself um, that well-known. Um, but the point they're making is that there's an awful lot that we don't really hear about and, and, and how are these famous species getting on? Um, and in fact, not so well, it seems. I mean, there are actually a real lack of, of binding conservation um, steps being taken for these charismatic species that we've heard of. For example, on things like the Convention on Trade, International Trade in Endangered Species. There are lots of species of sharks that, for example, aren't being managed at a global scale, which is what we need, because they're seeing these global problems and we need global efforts to try to try and protect them. But I'm have to say, it's not all doom and gloom. Public awareness... Um, Although it doesn't always come hand in hand with conservation, one problem was when Finding Nemo came out, people rushed out to go and buy their own Nemos, sometimes taken unsustainably from the oceans, and then a bunch of other people, kids mostly, flushed their Nemos down the toilet to set them free. So that wasn't great. But you know, on the whole, we are seeing, as you say, Chris, we are seeing more of the oceans in the media. We're seeing them on the screen. We're seeing them in cartoons and so on. And that's helping to spread the word of some place that otherwise is out of sight and out of mind. One important thing 
because it's very easy to focus on, I suppose, the exotic things, but there are also more, I hate to use the word mundane, but there are more sort of everyday type fish that we just exploit for food, like mackerel and herring things. There were some fishermen who got themselves in hot water in Shetland recently uh, for overfishing their quotas. How do they set those quotas? So when the government or the EU say, right, you're going to be allowed to fish X amount out of the ocean, what science is informing how they set those limits? It's a very good question. In fact, a new set of uh, quotas is just coming out for the EU. Um, it's the whole way that the fishery is managed, and it's looking like what the fishermen are now going to get is fewer days at sea with slightly larger quotas. It should be based on science. It begins with science, it ends up with a policy, and there's a long way in between those two things. But if we're looking just at the science, it's about how many fish are in the ocean still, how they're reproducing, how many young there are. It's understanding how the population is doing, essentially, how are they dealing with us taking a whole bunch of them out and replacing themselves. Um, so to get that information, you need to do stock assessments. You can do that all sorts of ways by counting the fish. We, we do fish by uh, actually sending down sonar. And there's ways of actually sort of imaging and figuring out how many fish are, are, there are in the oceans. We can't count them all. We've got to make estimates and then sort of add it up from small samples here and there. It's not perfect, but it is, it's what we've got. And um, it's, it's not always legal and people go and break those quotas. And that's what's been happening in Shetland. Thank you, Helen. And Dominic, with the, you've had your eye on Christmas with an, a sort of astronomy theme. Tell us about this one. That's right. This is something of a Christmas firework leftover from last year. It's a gamma-ray burster that was observed at about dinner time in the UK on Christmas Day last year. Now, a gamma-ray burster is a burst of radiation similar to what you would find in a nuclear reactor, but thankfully very much weaker and coming out of the night sky. Now, these are normally very short events. Many of them last less than a couple of seconds, so they're very difficult to observe. Um, But certainly even longer-lasting events typically are over within a couple of minutes. This one, however, was really quite a surprise because the gamma-ray particles carried on coming for about half an hour. And you could still actually see them a bit after half an hour, up to about 45 minutes. So it's quite a challenge to explain what this could have been that was so energetic that it was producing these high-energy gamma rays for such a long, prolonged period. Now, we have various ideas about what causes most conventional gamma ray bursts. We think the short ones are probably caused by neutron stars colliding with one another, and you have a tremendous release of gravitational energy as those two stars combine and form a black hole and that energy is released as gamma rays over a period of about two seconds because these things are so small they can combine very quickly. We think the longer bursts are caused by supernovae at the end of the lives of very massive stars Um, but even they will only last for a couple of minutes. So how could you possibly prolong this process to last for half an hour? So what do scientists think could have done that? Well, in Nature earlier this month, there were two papers that present two actually very different theories for what this could have been. One of the theories is that this was a neutron star colliding not with another neutron star, but with a massive star, just as it was about to go supernova. And that's actually quite a realistic scenario, because as a star is about to go supernova, it will expand. And if it's got a neutron star in a close orbit around it, it will then engulf that neutron star and the neutron star will get pulled in 
towards that star. So it's one star about to blow itself up, eating another star at the same time. Does this then trigger a cataclysmic reaction then? Well, the star was about to go supernova anyway, so that certainly pushes it over the edge into going supernova. So you have the two types of gamma ray bursts happening back to back, and that could perhaps lead to quite a prolonged emission of, of gamma rays. Now, the other model is a complete contrast to that. It's saying perhaps this was quite a small event quite nearby in our own galaxy. Perhaps it was a neutron star with a rocky asteroid about the size of the asteroid series in the solar system that came too close to this neutron star, and it was broken up by the tidal gravitational forces around this neutron star into lots of little pieces. And these pieces fell in one by one over the course of about half an hour, leading to lots of very weak gamma-ray bursts that we saw as this continuous spread of, of gamma rays. Now, both of those models actually turn out to fit the observations pretty well. But I think the, the point this does bring home is that probably there's not any one mechanism which is responsible for all gamma-ray bursters. These are probably caused by a, a huge range of, of, of phenomena and they just happen to look quite similar when we observe them. Brilliant. Dominic, thank you very much. So, Dave, what have you been looking at in the news this week? I saw an incredible story. A camera has been built which is capable of taking a trillion frames per second. OK, that's pretty fast. Uh, what's the next best or next fastest? There are certainly cameras around which will take hundreds of thousands of frames a second, but I don't think this fast. You've probably tried slowing films down yourself. Eventually they get jerky, in fact, really quite quickly. It's because your camera only records maybe 15 or 30 frames a second. And as you slow it down, there's no information between those frames, so it becomes really jerky. But Professor Ramesh Rashkar um, at the Media Lab at MIT has created a camera which will do a trillion frames per second. What technically is the problem that you have to solve in order to make a very fast camera then? Why is it difficult? To do it properly, you'd have a sensor which resets itself a trillion times a second, and the just electronics can't do that. So it's a technological problem? It's just physically very, very difficult to do. The way they did it was with something called a streak camera. Now, this only looks at one line of the image at a time, so it's not looking at the whole picture. And they project this line onto a screen, and the screen converts this light signal into a signal of free electrons. And then these are accelerated along a vacuum tube towards a detector at the end of a tube. Um, this beam of electrons can then be deflected incredibly quickly up across the sensor. So you end up with the bottom of the sensor detecting what hit it at the beginning of your recording time, and the top of the sensor is recording what happens at the end. So you can deflect these so fast and get this trillion frames a second. And how do you build up one line of an image into the complete image? Well, this is where they're cheating slightly, and it's not really a proper trillion frames a second video camera. They have to then do the same thing again for another line and again for another line, so maybe 500 times to get full, fairly low-resolution image. But you recompile all of those things, stitch them all together in time, and you see the complete image as it would have been if you'd seen it in the full dimension rather than just as a line. That's right. So you are constrained to things which you can repeat exactly again and again and again. What does it look like when, when you see these images then? They're absolutely incredible. Um, they've got a very, very short laser pulse, about a millimetre long, and you can see this moving across the screen, a kind of slow, as you'd move your hand across um, a, a table or something very slowly. You actually see a, a wave of light going along. You can see a pulse of light moving across, and then the really incredible thing is if you set up a mirror, you see the pulse go up to the mirror, then it bounces off the mirror, and you can see the reflected light coming off in another direction. That's amazing. OK, let's go up a gear then. What about if you do these clever experiments where you put light through two different parallel slits? 
you know what I'm going to say, when you put light through one slit and then you've got another slit next to it and you get this interference pattern where the light waves interact with each other, if you watch the photons coming through, then they just make two spots of light. If you don't watch them, you get rings and, and interference patterns. What would happen if you did that experiment with this? Well, this isn't actually looking at the light it's, um, as it's travelling along. What you're actually seeing is scattered light. The light hits something and bounces off. So if it's hitting some dust in the air or it's hitting a tabletop or something, you are seeing that pulse moving along. And this thing with reflections is why it could be really, really powerful. Because if you had some complex object, they did it with a big pile of crystals, it's almost impossible to see inside that because the reflections from the surface completely mask what's going on deeper inside. But if you watch it with this camera, they've actually got a video of this, you see the light going in and then you see the reflections coming out from near the surface and then you see the later reflections and you see the kind of whole thing sparkles for about five or six seconds slowed down. And so if you did lots of very clever maths to that and probably illuminated it from different directions, you could actually build up a picture of what was inside that crystal structure or possibly even inside the body because the body is actually relatively transparent. It's just it scatters light really well. And if you could separate when the light came out of your body and you do a lot of hard maths, you could actually work out pictures of inside your body invisible light without cutting yourself open and that could be an incredibly powerful technique. Or resorting to other forms of radiation which could be harmful to do it. Both harmful and don't give you the same information because there are various diseases and things which you can identify with visible light but you couldn't do with ultrasound or x-rays. And now with a look at what else has been sparking scientific interest around the globe here's Miracentha Lingam with the Naked Science Newsflash. The African lungfish uses its fins to walk rather than swim underwater. Publishing in the journal PNAS, Heather King from the University of Chicago monitored the movements of lungfish in tanks of water and found them using their pelvic fins as hind legs to walk along the bottom of the tank. The findings suggest that walking may have evolved underwater rather than on land. This is evidence to support the idea that perhaps walking evolved before feet evolved or digits or terrestriality in this lineage lobed fin fishes to which tetrapods belong. And of course, we are tetrapods. Every land animal with a backbone and four limbs is a tetrapod. So that's why lungfish are important to look at because they're one of the last uh, closest relatives of the tetrapods that's still alive. The smallest steam engine in the world has been developed by scientists at the University of Stuttgart. Using a single colloidal particle called melamine, thousandth of a millimetre in size submerged in an equally small chamber of water, Clemens Beschinger used a laser to trap the particle and varied the laser's intensity to either restrict or free the particle, resembling the compression and expansion seen in a large-scale steam engine. A second laser was used to heat and cool the water bath. If we change the intensity of the heating and compression expansion laser beams in the right way, we can then make this engine to work. And the surprising result is that if you tune the parameters correctly, then the efficiency of such a small steam engine, although it stutters, also it doesn't run as smoothly as its macroscopic counterpart, can be as large as that of a macroscopic steam engine. Birds living in cities produce higher-pitched sounds than those living in more rural environments. It's long been known that urban birds produce a different song to those in the countryside, but the reasons why have been subject to speculation. 
But now, recording and monitoring the songs of great tits in and around the city of Sheffield, Emily Mockford from the University of Aberystwyth found that birds within the city produce sounds of a much higher pitch, enabling the sounds to travel further and echo less off surrounding buildings. The architecture of a city is in fact changing the way that sound travels through the environment and it will affect how birdsong travels through the environment as well. We need to think about the way we build our cities and the way the wildlife has to adapt around us. It's not actually the noise that we're making, but it's actually the physical soundscape that we're creating as well that they have to adapt around. Um, it is the larger cities that will have this problem because it's these massive reflective surfaces and urban canyons and open spaces that are changing the way that sound travels. Mosquitoes release droplets of fluid to keep themselves cool whilst feeding. Scientists have often wondered how cold-blooded insects such as mosquitoes prevent themselves overheating when consuming hot blood from a human. Using thermal cameras to monitor mosquitoes during a meal, Claudio Lazari's team from the University of Tours in France noticed that as they feed, the insects exude droplets of fluid to cool their bodies down to ambient temperatures. We have seen that uh, at the beginning the mosquito warms up and very soon during the feeding process, they start emitting a droplet of urine that they keep attached to the, the body. And at that moment, the temperature of the mosquito's body starts to decrease because of the evaporation of this fluid. So the evaporation produces a, a loss of heat in the mosquito's body. The work could be used to control mosquito populations in the future and is published this week in the journal Current Biology. And as usual, you'll find more science news along with references on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.